Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the My Best Teacher podcast, hosted by me, Dan Worth. Today's guest is TV presenter, author and broadcaster Claire Boulding. She chats to us about her school days covering 1980s fashion disasters, an inspirational English teacher and why she was once suspended from school before going on to become head girl. We also discuss a new book she's written for children aimed at helping build resilience, wonder why dogs don't enjoy video calls as much as we do, and she recalls a very painful sounding trip to A&E. All that and lots more on the latest My Best Teacher podcast from Tez. Hi Claire, welcome to the My Best Teacher podcast. Really great to chat with you today. Um, let's kick off then by, can you tell us where did you, where was your first school that you went to? I went to Kingsclear Primary School. I grew up in quite a small village on the border of Hampshire and Berkshire, hmm. um, but it had a, a really good primary school and um, I went there until I did my common entrance at 10. I did my common entrance a bit early and actually I just was put back in touch with the school because I have managed to do something where I've given them a year's free subscription to Fanetti, which is a reading app for mm. kids and it listens to kids' voices and it helps them read out loud. So it was nice to be, you know, be able to give something back to the school where, um, yeah, where I, I probably went to infant school before that, but, but Kingsclear Primary School is the first one I remember. When you went back, was that the first time you'd been back since, since you were there? Well, I haven't physically been back because I can't. Um, so it was just a case of getting in touch with them. I mean, I can't at the moment. Yes, um, I see. But no, I, mean, I have been. And I went there after the London Olympics. I took the Olympic torch there for the kids to see. That must have been a fantastic thing to do. Yeah, it was great, actually. Was it strange as well being back? Did everything suddenly seem, everything in your memory had been massive when you were there? Suddenly was like, oh, actually, that yeah. was normal sized. Yeah, exactly. You sort of think the playground is really huge or you mm. think a certain you know, classroom is massive, but it's not at all. It's yeah. just you, you were little, so everything was big. <laughs> yes, one sense of perspective and scale changes quite a lot. Um, excellent. Well, that sounds good. And at that school, again, do you look back, were there any teachers there particularly you remember in, in you know, great fondness or just thinking, oh, they, they were good or they were fun? Um, I remember from my early days, and I don't know whether it was at Kingsclear Primary School or whether it was at Inhurst, which was the school I went to before that, I had a really nice teacher called Mrs. Elvin, who was very kind and just, I always, you know, those teachers where they, you want to do things to make them proud of you, mm. but you're not scared of them or anything, but you just really feel that you want to make them proud of you. She was like that. Um, so that was probably the one I, that stands out before mm. I went off to, to boarding school at 10. Yeah, yeah, that is a nice thing, isn't it? Like, so when there's a teacher that you have that, particularly when you're young, because like you say, it isn't about, it's just that they're sort of that you want to do good work for them and you want them to give you a, a gold star or whatever it is because they just have that nice, you have that nice rapport, which as a young person, it's quite a unique thing to develop, I think. Yeah, and also the, they're the ones that Mrs. Elvin was always really, tactile and huggy she'd give the mm. night you know she if she thought you were being if you if she thought you were sad or she knew you were being picked on she'd just give you a hug and that was nice mm. have you have you ever sort of spoken to her since you yeah you know... yeah her her husband actually for many years was head of accident and emergency at Basingstoke hospital and for one reason or another we saw a lot of him right and uh, <laughs> and, and it, they still they still live in Kingsclear and are friends of my parents so yes I I do see I do see Mrs Elvin yeah her daughter actually teaches at um, Cheam, which is where my nephews and my niece go now. So this sort of circle is complete. <laughs> and, and your re regular trips to A&E, I'm presuming that's horse riding related. 
Yeah, I would fall off a lot of horses and and um, also fall off bikes and smash your knees to bits. And I even managed once to really, this is really gruesome, so don't be eating anything as you listen to me say this. I stuck a pitchfork through my foot once. Oh, wow. That, that is that, quite something. Yeah. And that requires a very urgent trip to A&E and a tetanus injection. Wow. Did you get like one of those punch cards where like, on your 10th visit you get a free... Yeah, you know, pretty free much coffee free coffee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's that's quite dramatic. Okay, well, we're moving on from that, um, and we'll, the the theme of falling off things though is going to we're going to talk about that in a little bit as well. So that's a nice little um, you know teaser for that. But but let's move on. And you, you mentioned boarding school then. So obviously obviously that's your secondary school. So yeah, tell us a bit about that. Where was that, and what was that like? Particularly, what was it like going to boarding school? The, the sort of first few days. That must have been quite something. It was really scary because bear in mind, Harry Potter hadn't been written when I went <laughs> to school. So I had no magical view of, mm. of going off to Hogwarts or, or and being in different houses. But that's what, what it was like. And I was a bit younger than everybody else there and significantly smaller. I was tiny. Right. So I was the littlest and youngest person in the school. And I'd never really spent time away from home before. And my main concern was the dogs wouldn't know where I'd gone. So we had two boxers and two lurchers and the boxers I was particularly fond of. And I was really worried that they wouldn't know that I was coming back. Mm. So I spent a long time saying goodbye to them and crying and then writing them letters and ringing up and asking to talk to the dogs. That's, that is, I mean, I think there'll be a lot of people listening who, who identify with that. I mean, I certainly... You know, I wasn't at boarding school, but yeah, not seeing the dog for a period of time, like going to university and, and trying very hard to explain to the dog, like, I am coming back. You know, this isn't me leaving but of course you they don't know and they just think no. you're leaving and then you and come actually, back and then you leave again and yeah oh. I, and for all that technology has changed um and that's beneficial to us as humans because we can see each other having a conversation mm. like this it doesn't really work with dogs it's okay for us we can see them but i don't think they get it no archie never got it we had a tibetan terrier and whenever i was away i would obviously when i rang home i'd ask to talk to archie and you know, he'd be shown me on screen, either on television actually working mm. or on a screen FaceTiming, and he never really got it. No, no, no they, need, they need to evolve to, to get better at video calls. They need to get better at it, exactly. Yes, they do, yeah. <laughs> um, but talking about, um, but the dogs, also, I guess, to finish that off, they would, obviously, when you came home, they would remember oh, you and greet you with more affection than you could know what to do with. Way more affection than any of your family. I mean, yeah. so excited to see you, and that was really gratifying. I loved that. Back to school, though. Um, and um, so obviously that does sound quite, you know, can you can imagine that is quite a sort of an emotional thing to go through and leaving home and being at boarding school. But did you settle quickly or did the first, you know, year, two years, do you think, yeah, actually, that was a tough thing and I really you know, struggled or I found it difficult? The, the other, the thing I really struggled with was the first weekend when everyone changed into their own clothes. Mm. Now, I, I went, so we were in uniform, obviously, during during the week and that was fine because everyone's wearing the same thing and mine was a bit big for me, but it was all right. Everyone's in the same same boat. But that first weekend, Saturday lunchtime, everyone changed into their own clothes. And this was in 1980. And I didn't know anything about fashion. So I put on the one pair of trousers that I had, which was a cord, which were cords, and they were flares. Mm. Now, flares apparently went out in 1979, and this was 1980, and everyone was in drain pipes. And I swear to God, the look that I was given was like, what, what have you done? What what are you thinking? Yeah. And so I decided. I obviously realised the error of my ways that this was a huge mistake, and how could I possibly have done this? 
So I took out a needle and thread and I cut the insides of my trousers and then sewed them up again and created a pair of frog's legs, really. That's what they look like. Um, yeah. Yeah, but that, that's, that is quite, I mean, like non-uniform days at school. I mean, I remember that, like they're like a fashion parade and the stress of, or what you're wearing and is it cool enough and, and you can see why actually uniform is quite a good thing isn't it because it removes all that and it just yeah uni- uniform's a great thing and when i realized that actually i could get away with it the weekends just wearing my sports gear so keeping my tracksuit bottoms on and wearing a big baggy jumper mm. and it didn't matter that it was still a school jumper that it wasn't at least i wasn't wearing uniform anymore i could get away with that 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 was a big relief but i think it's why a lot of you know grunge wear if you like or sports wear generally has become so because it's comfortable mm. and it's easy and it kind of doesn't go out of fashion i don't think i think there's quite a lot of things that just don't just just stay stay the same and tracksuit bottoms are tracksuit bottoms they don't, they're not you know they don't seem to change too much in shape mm. no i know what you mean they do have a sort of universal they cover all bases don't they so that that was my first disaster not not being able to not not wearing clothes that that and i felt a real pressure of uh, i i felt then for the first time massively not fitting in and there was always an element there had been an element of that because i'd come from primary school and everyone else had come from prep school so they'd already been they'd already boarded they'd already been in the independent sector they were quite privileged kids and with a certain sense of confidence and maybe a a smidge of entitlement as well. Um, and I didn't feel good enough in so many ways. I wasn't good enough. And, and and it was very clear to me I wasn't good enough. I didn't go on fancy summer holidays. I didn't have, my parents didn't have a, you know, second home or a private jet or a chauffeur or any of these things. Um, so your feet, you feel massively inadequate. And I think to make up for that in my second year, I tried to really get in with the cool gang. And the cool gang we're all doing quite a lot of naughty things they shouldn't have been doing, which included shoplifting. And of course, me being me, I got caught. And I got hauled up in front of the headmistress saying, you know, what were you thinking? What were you, Explain this to me. What were you doing? Did anyone tell you to do it? And I, because of all the books I'd read, like the heroine never dobs her mates in. So I was full of, no, nobody told me to do it. It was all my idea. Um, it was me, 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 blame me. And so she did blame me and suspended me. <laughs> It's like, oh, that wasn't meant to happen. So mm, so I got suspended and I got dehoused. Right. So no, this did not happen at any stage to anyone else in my year. Somebody did get expelled later, um, one of the cool gang actually, but I got moved from the house that I'd been put in to another house. And that was a much nicer house actually. And I took me many, many years to sort of recover from the shame of being the thief, the shoplifter, mm. the one who's been suspended. But eventually, and that's why in many, you know, that's why I wanted to write a book like this for kids like me who didn't feel they fitted in. And and I want them to avoid the mistakes I made. Don't succumb to peer pressure because you feel you don't fit in. It'll be okay. It is okay to be you. It's okay to be different. And I wanted to do that in a way that wasn't didactic or patronising. But look, this is my real life experience. This is what I think I've learned about it with the benefit of, you know, time um, and age and experience. <laughs> yeah. um, and this is how maybe you aged 11, 12, 13 or 25 or 35 might respond differently if you find yourself in that situation. 
We'll come on to your book shortly and talk about it in a bit more detail because it has got a very good, good message. And I, I mean, and the, and the title itself is quite sort of punchy and eye-catching. So I, I sort of will come on to that shortly. But one thing I'd like to finish up on that story is you obviously, you said you were suspended and so forth, but you did, you know, you did, it didn't affect you long-term because I understand you eventually became um, head of house for your, for your house. Is that right? What's the term? Yeah, I did. I became head of house and then head girl. So that's a great um, transformation. I mean, what, how, yeah. did that, how did that all play? And again, was that in part because of a teacher who started to, or teachers at the school who really sort of helped you and sort of got you to focus correctly on, what, you know, on your studies think, or sport? Yeah, I think a number of things happened. I think, I think one, my headmistress kind of knew what, a, what, had, what the pressure was about. I think she understood and she was willing to give me another chance and putting me in a house where actually... I was lucky because one of my friends, who's still a friend today, was the daughter of a teacher. And her mother had said to her, look out for Claire. Just just look after her. Don't don't let her be ostracised or bullied. Just look out, uh, out for her. And she did. And um, that really helped. I think also I threw myself into, I became very quiet and and withdrawn and reserved, but but started to work a bit harder on my academic subjects. But also... Sport has always been a big love of mine and being a part of a team gave me a role in which I wasn't defined by being the shoplifter. I was defined by being left attack or right attack or third home. I played lacrosse and and my role in that team was, you know, how quickly can you get the ball and pass it? How how quickly can you see what might happen next? Are you going to be able to defend that situation or attack if you're given a chance? And I think that really helped me. Um find a role and a place where I felt that I was safe um, and that I could make a contribution that mattered. So sport was profoundly life-changing for me. Um, and I wasn't the best player and I wasn't a star in any means, but I felt like I fitted, somehow I fitted. And that helped. And then I, in my, um, maybe my O-level year, I was the last year of O-levels before GCSEs came in. So. Um, I think in my O-level year, we got a new English teacher called Miss Healy. And she and I loved English. I was really enjoying it and I was quite good at it. And I mean, you know, good at English just means you can read a lot <laughs> and, and you can remember things and you like writing and you have creative, you know, uh, drive and you're interested and you're constantly asking questions and you want to read more. Um, and she was phenomenal. She was a great teacher. She'd just come from Oxford. I think it was her first job. She was barely older than us, really. She was probably only about six years older than us. Um, and she was brilliant and hard to please and not at all warm and cuddly, but um, sharp, razor sharp, clever, funny and demanding of you, you know, asking questions that other teachers hadn't asked. They'd just like give you this, the, you know, learn this poem and and tell me what it means. She'd say, well, understand this poem in your way and tell me why you think what you think. There isn't a definitive answer here. You know, you, you are allowed to come up with your own conclusion and it is valid. And I loved that. And she's the one that made me want to do English at A-level. And then subsequently, eventually, 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 I went to university and read English. But, but that mm. took, took a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, certainly the way you describe her there is like, you know, that sort of demanding and, and sort of that's a skill that many teachers I think listening and, and we know through Tez you know they know that actually that's what a good teacher can do as well and they don't give an inch but that's what gets their best out of someone and, and sort of pushes them to be their best and it sounds like that's very much what what happened for you yeah yeah 
and and funny so she was called Miss Healy and we had we had a very good English department we had Miss Goss and Mrs Bellhouse who were who were old school you, you know they'd been in the school long enough in fact Miss Goss had taught my mother that's how long they'd been there but Miss Healy was young and fresh and different and I think herself had been taught in a different way but certainly having just finished university came to us understanding of our of our our ignorance, frankly, but also our frailties, our weaknesses, our questions, our, um, you know, what what the world was meaning to us was, she she was much, much closer to that mm. than, than the older teachers had been. And I thought that was really refreshing. And I would then suddenly get to her class early and I wanted to do well. I wanted to write essays that impressed her. Mm. Um, and she, I think, gave me the confidence to think I could try for Oxbridge and and although I didn't get in first time you know ultimately I did end up reading English at Cambridge and that was entirely due to her. That's a great story isn't it because you've talked about how you know you were caught shoplifting and suspended and had this sort of you thought you were seen as the shoplifter and obviously that must have been quite a heavy thing to, to bear and then obviously over time you, you sort of developed and these teachers helped you in sport and you became a head girl and went to Cambridge and you know and then on to television everything that brought with you so you clearly went through that journey of from difficulty to success, and it shows it, it didn't just happen. It wasn't easy. It's something that you that you earned and, and that was you know not just delivered to you. And and that brings us on to this book you've written, which is called Fall Off, Get Back On, Keep Going. That really sums that up, doesn't it? Same with horse riding. Why did you want to write this book now? Is, has it been pandemic related? And you thinking children need something like this to understand that failure and falling off is is going to happen, and you've just got to get back on with it. Um, well, funnily enough, um, it, it wasn't pandemic related when I started it. I, it's an idea that's been a long time in the building. When I started writing for children about four or five years ago, obviously I went to a lot of schools and kids will ask a, a lot of questions, but I ask them a lot of questions as well. And it occurred to me that they're for, for all the negativity around, you know, the, the selfie-obsessed generation and the social media, you know, and the, the pressure of likes on Instagram and all of that, and there is a, you know, there's a lot about it that is, I think, profoundly damaging. There's also the basic things that kids care about are the big problems like, like the environment and, and climate change, and it really does bother them and, and they want to make a positive impact. But when you ask them, what do you love about your best friend? which I ask kids a lot, they say he or she, you know, they're so kind, they're so funny, they make me laugh, they're there for me, they'll look out for me, they'll, they'll protect me, they'll comfort me, all those things. And I say to them, right, so it's not about what they look like. It's not about their hairstyle, it's not about their clothes, it's not about their latest iPhone and AirPods. And they say, no. I said, well, remember that because that's what they love about you as well, that you're kind, that you make them laugh, that you support them, that you listen. Those are the qualities that matter. So it's having those conversations made me think, right, I'm, I wonder if there's, if there's enough. How can I create a book that is easy for kids to read, that doesn't feel didactic or patronising, that they can relate to, and therefore I need to open myself up. I need to tell them all the awful things that have happened without over-dramatising stuff, but just saying, look, this happened to me. I know that feeling. I do understand that feeling of exclusion or extreme vulnerability or shame or 
I know what it's like to be at the centre of a Twitter storm, for example. You know, I know this. And this is what I think are the, you know, this, I'm not offering you answers, but I'm offering you ways in which you might be able to um, not just survive it, but thrive through difficult times or eventually thrive. And of course, when I was writing, we were in the first lockdown. I didn't for any, I not for a second did I think by the time it got published, we'd be back in lockdown and kids would have gone through all of this time of homeschooling and actually missing school, which you never thought. And I think I wrote in it, you'll never think that you might miss being with your, you know, being at school, but they do miss it. And they, I think also it's taught us the value of structure, kids and adults. We like structure. We actually, I mean, I try to give myself a, it sounds pathetic, but I sort of give myself a timetable every day. That includes, and I need to, you know, I did all my walking this morning because I knew I was doing interviews all, you know, through the afternoon. But it includes exercise time, but it includes sort of study time. I'm doing a French course at the moment, only once a week, so my French lessons tomorrow. Um, and, and I'm trying to watch something vaguely educational online or on telly, reading a lot, which I'm loving. Um, Obviously, some work. I'm working tomorrow afternoon um, on women's football, and I write um, fairly regularly. And I'm, but the one thing I can't at the moment. I'm meant to be concentrating and chapter planning and starting to write the next children's book. I just can't. It's because it's too open ended. There isn't a deadline, so I'm sort of drifting a bit with that. Yes, there's nothing like a deadline to focus the mind, is there? Yeah, that's very much in in our world. You know, as journalists, it's. It's amazing what you can do when you have to get something done by five o'clock. Whereas if someone said, oh, can you write something on this? Don't worry about when. You just, oh, I'll do that tomorrow kind of attitude, which is no help really to anyone. But yeah, no, totally understandable. Um, and when you were writing this book, did you, how easy did you find it to sort of find the tone of the right tone of voice? Because I've, I've read some of it. I haven't read all of it, but I've read a little bit of it. And it has got a lovely sort of bounce to it. And a sort of, you know, pitching that at that kind of age group is hard, isn't it? Because if you try and be too much like, hey, I'm cool, they see right through it, but you can't talk to them like they're a grown-up because that's yeah. they're not. So how how easy did you find to get that tone of voice? Because I think, you know, it does capture it nicely. I was thinking I've got two nieces and I can imagine them reading this and, and sort of finding it funny, but learning from it too in, in a good way, you know? That's a really good question. When I wrote My Animals and Other Family, which was my first memoir, which includes a lot of stories about school, actually, um, and... I I found I was getting a lot of feedback from children and I was thinking, this is really weird. Why are kids reading this? It's an adult book. I haven't I hadn't in any way written in a in a manner that I hadn't moderated the language at all for a young audience. It was a book for adults, but kids read it because it was about school and because it was about getting into trouble at school even better. Um, So I was getting a younger audience than I anticipated then when I started writing fiction for children, that wasn't so difficult. The way I the way I write is the way I speak, and I think it's because I started life in radio. I I write in a very conversational way, and although I might occasionally use a complicated sentence structure or the odd good adjective, it's not beyond the realms of understanding. Um, the difficulty with this book was getting. You're right. The tone of I'm sharing this with you, but I don't want you to feel I'm battering you with it. You know, that it's not, I'm not trying to say this is the way to live your life. I, I want to present ideas that are that are fun. And what's really helped with that, obviously, the illustrations. 
Yes. And Jessica Holm has done the most amazing job and she's so talented and she gets it. And as soon as you look at the book and it's got bright purples and blues, it's really, it's a vibrant colour and lots of box outs and lists and uh, a sort of summary chapter at the end. All of those, th- those are ways in which you make it more palatable um, and that people can take it in bite-sized form. But actually, the way I write, I think, has always been quite, um, you know, easy to easy to read, and that and that works for kids without talking down to them. Yes, it's, it's a hard balance to get right, isn't it? You know, the illustrations, as you say, I had that on my notes of of how good they are, and they really they're almost like their own little story going on behind the words, aren't they? And again, for, for children, like to turn the pages and dive in, maybe not read it in a linear way, but just to dive in and and sort of be engrossed by it. I think that that works so nicely. And and also the chapter titles, I sort of feel like I have to mention, you've got one called The Cake of Kindness and the first chapter is called Super Sticky Stickability, which you must have had fun coming out of them as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And The Cloak of Confidence, I mm. really like that as a very visual image of this thing that you can take out of the cupboard and put on and it will help you feel more confident. Um, but you're right, rather than have, you know, if it had been an adult book, you, you could have, you know, done loyalty, resilience, mm. um, you know, flexibility, um, or creativity, um, but but making it a bit more, a bit more fun. Um, always like alliteration, so so super sticky stickability is 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 easy, and you know you yeah. you immediately you get a vision of a stick insect rather than <laughs> rather than trying to cling on for dear life yeah. <laughs> as, as something goes wrong. <laughs> I, I will not fall. Um, but yeah, it's it, it it's a lot of fun and it requires a lot of creativity, but more than anything, a lot of rewriting. So the first um, the first edition, as it were, um, my first effort was much too worthy and heavy, and that's the thing. That's where writing it is a bit like making the cake of kindness that you you've got to you you've got to whisk it just right and and get the texture just light enough. But still tasty and still good for you, hopefully. Yeah, better no, better for you than cake, <laughs> <laughs> or, or as good. I mean, a good as good cake as cake. You're tea. right. I mean, Cake's what, not bad. Better than exactly. That? <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's that's the book. <laughs> fall fall off. Get back on. Keep going. That's out now, isn't it? So that's um that's definitely something to look out for. And it's got a very eye catching cover as well. So I'm sure people will spy that when if we're in the shops at this time of when this is published. If people are going into shops again, or if they are soon, then I'm sure they'll spot that. Well, and also I'm hoping, I'm hoping that very soon I'll be able to do school visits again because mm. that, I really enjoy that. And that's such a good way to get children together thinking about issues or like if I said to a group of children from, from different year groups, when have you felt most vulnerable and what did you do to get through it and who helped you? I think they'd come up with such fascinating answers. And really, that's a question about strength. It's not a question about weakness. And that's the other thing to try and flip the brain into thinking positively. And that's really the trick, I guess, you know, to getting through what we're what we're going through right now Mm. is tricking the brain into thinking that it's, you know, trying to see something good in every day is, is a very powerful thing. Final school question, and this is always a fertile ground for good stories. Um, are there any school trips or days out you remember particularly as being chaotic, carnage or brilliant or anything like that? We went on a school trip to Russia 
And I studied Russian for a very short time, for, for a term. I can literally say, which is, my name is Claire, I love you. And I figured that would get me through anything. Um, <laughs> as it turned out, it didn't get me out of trouble when we went to cross a street without waiting for the lights. And in Russia, um, what they call jaywalking is what they call it. It's, it's, it's a crime. Uh, you are not allowed to cross the road except when the lights are red and, you know, you're told or a policeman says you can. So they they stopped a whole group of us. And I remember this this policeman saying, but you will go to jail. And we were all going, what? We just crossed the road. What you want about, man? You know, and uh, we didn't know. We didn't know that was the law. We didn't know. And he said, ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law. And I've always remembered that as being so firm. And yet it's true. Ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law. I, you, you make it your business to know what the law is. Don't just blase walk across the traffic like you own Moscow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we had this amazing trip to Moscow. And I remember the food being awful. And it was pretty much the first time they'd opened up. So this was late 80s. They'd only really just opened up to, to well, certainly school children, but to foreign travellers. I mean, it was very much you know, Gorbachev that new era and um, Russia being a bit more outward looking and um, modern. Um, it was amazing. I mean, the architecture was extraordinary. And I remember also in St. Petersburg, um, Leningrad, as it was then, watching people lining up against a wall by the river to get the sun and, and taking that, and it was cold, taking their tops off and, and, and sunbathing, standing upright. I'd never seen anything like it. So it was phenomenal. And, and there's a trip that shows you how different life can be. That was a real eye opener. You know, I couldn't think of anything more different to the way we lived. And I said right at the beginning, you know, I, at school, I was with people who were very privileged and vaguely entitled. And, and that trip certainly checked me in terms of thinking, you know, um, getting ideas above my station or, or believing that everybody had equal opportunity because they they don't. You know, there are situations in which you you definitely are starting a mile behind the pack. Um, and I think being aware of that and trying to level up opportunity has been a big driving force for me. Um, you know, whether that be equal pay or equal rights or equal marriage. That, that does show, doesn't it, school trips are so powerful because they're so often sold as educational but actually they're also and obviously this is a form of education but it's about life education and seeing the world and you know, travel broadens the mind as the old adage goes but and it shows doesn't it like you say you remember that as much for the kind of sense of what the society was like there and the people and how they lived as much as any oh we went to see a museum or we went to a historical site it's, it's what you learn while you're there and those little moments that happen and why trips are so important Last question, what about school dinners or school lunches where you were? Were they good? Were they as good as the Russian food you had on your trip? Oh, they were way better than the Russian food. <laughs> they were Food was really good at school. I really liked it. Oh, good, right. Oh, my word. Yeah, and we used to get, um, I particularly liked bread and butter pudding and occasionally we'd have ice cream with chocolate sauce. Can you believe it? With chocolate, it's a really good chocolate sauce. I mean, it wasn't all just about puddings. Very nice shepherd's pie. Fish pie was good. Um you know, roasts. At the, I mean, we had good food in a massive dining room 
in tables that were mixed year groups. So mm. so you had to sit at a certain table. So there wasn't that awful thing of wondering whether you'd been saved a place. Mm. That it's a bit like wearing uniform. Having a table that you know you're meant to be sitting at is a really good thing because it just takes the pressure off. Um, and I quite enjoyed that. And, you you know, you'd sit with girls and years above you and sort of stare at them thinking, oh, you're from a different planet. And then they say, could you pass the salt? And you'd virtually faint because they'd spoken <laughs> to you. Um, yeah, that was, uh, we had good food there. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, my friends always remember that we, on our Fridays at our school, they used to do, um, it was only on Fridays, but they would do chips and beans and cheese and you would ignore them, the option on the side because you wanted extra chips. So you just get chips, beans, cheese on top two slices of bread and two chocolate mousses. And when we were in the sixth form, we didn't have to queue. You know, we could go in early. So we went straight in. We got that mound of food. And then we, we must have eaten it in five minutes flat and then gone out and played football for about an hour and 10 minutes, like the most amount we could get in the lunch break. And I look back at that and think, how do our bodies cope with that intake yeah. and then all that sport and exercise? But obviously when you're 17 or so, it, you're just indestructible. So you just did that as if it was the norm. But yeah. looking back, it's, um, I don't think it's what a, an elite athlete has before a strenuous act, sporting activity <laughs> no probably not but you should you should probably treat yourself to a really good plate of chips beans and cheese just as a sort of relive yeah. those halcyon days yeah definitely definitely <laughs> well i think that's a perfect place to end so thank you so much for talking to us about your school days uh, about the book as well um, which is, is out now and definitely worth looking out for and thank you very much again thank you dan 